Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. My co-host, Mary McCluskey, is on vacation this week, so I am happy that my colleague, Todd Scribner, was able to substitute for her. So, Todd, thanks for coming and joining us today. It's a pleasure being here, as always. And we are joined today by my friend, Barrett Turner. Dr. Turner is an assistant professor of theology at Mount St. Mary's University in Emmitsburg, Maryland. He specializes in moral theology, Catholic social teaching, and development of doctrine. And he is in town for the annual meeting of the Academy of Catholic Theology. So that gives us a perfect opportunity to have him come and talk with us about the church's teaching on religious liberty. Thanks for coming to join us. Thanks for having me. So on this podcast, we typically talk about policy issues, threats to religious liberty, issues on Capitol Hill, what's happening in the courts. Uh, But this is really a good chance to talk more about what the Catholic Church actually teaches about religious liberty. So, I mean, the first question, best place to start, it's basic, kind of a big question, but I think it's still a good place to begin, is just what religious liberty actually is in church teaching. Uh, Most Americans, including Catholics, tend to think about religious freedom in terms of the First Amendment. I think for most people, they see it in terms of no establishment of religion, free exercise, individual rights, a so-called separation of church and state. How does the church's teaching differ? Um, Talk to us a little bit about what Dignitatis Humanae has to say about religious liberty and what religious liberty looks like in the vision of Catholic social teaching. So Dignitatis Humanae, in case your your listeners aren't familiar, this is the document from Vatican II uh, where the church's modern teaching on religious liberty is found. And uh, the church continues to draw from that document and her engagement with um, various societies around the world and, and what she teaches about this human right of religious, le- religious freedom. So uh, I, I think you're right, especially a popular understanding of the First Amendment for Americans is uh, something right about religious liberty, namely that the state can't force someone into a religious belief or religious practice. And um, uh, in that regard, that the state has no intrinsic authority over religion, which is what Dignitatis Humanae talks about. The state does not have the ability to force someone uh, against his or her belief into a certain religious um, uh, practice or lifestyle. Um, Oftentimes we talk about uh, the state being free from religion or free from the church in that regard. Many people Mm -hmm. talk about that side of um, the First Amendment not not establishing a religion and freeing people from religion. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the First Amendment, as it was actually intended as a complicated issue, because I'm sure, as you and many of your listeners are aware, the founding fathers themselves had very divergent attitudes toward uh, Christianity, Protestantism in particular, uh, but also religion. So you have more hostile founding fathers like Jefferson, uh, those who are sympathetic but nonetheless think that the state Uh, shouldn't even cognize religion and its laws like Madison and others who are much more favorable to religion but wanted to protect the prerogative of each individual state Mm -hmm. of the United States to establish their own religion as part of um, part of their state's identity. But oftentimes people will leave the view of religious liberty on that negative side. And I think where the church's teaching is very helpful is noting that included within that restriction on the state and what it can dictate to its citizens regarding religion is that the state also um, can't prevent citizens 
from the practice of their religion. And that's not something that's merely cognitive, merely about belief, but also about um, living one's life in light of, of the truth about God mm-hmm. and religious practice. So just as the state cannot coerce someone against their will toward religious practice um, on its own authority, neither can it restrict on its own authority someone's religious practice. And uh, so it's the church teaches that the right of religious liberty in this way is a negative right. It's a freedom from state coercion. But that has two sides to it, a negative side, you can't be forced toward religious practice, but also you can't be hindered from living uh, according to um, the free pursuit of the truth about God. Um, so in that regard, there, there's a little bit more focus on the state um, providing the conditions in which the citizens can exercise this freedom to pursue the truth about God and the church's teaching Mm -hmm. that isn't as often or isn't as frequently invoked in the way in which popularly Americans understand First Amendment. So as far as free exercise, um, the church teaches that the state ought to create laws that um, not only protect people's freedom, but even encourages or fosters religious liberty. In this way, there's a little bit of a tension between Mm -hmm. what the church teaches on religious liberty and the, the American tradition insofar as Americans are conditioned to think as inseparable the notions of non-establishment and free exercise. Mm-hmm. So in the First Amendment, there's there's um, uh, two parts to um, the religious aspect of the First Amendment, namely that the there'll be no establishment of religion at the federal level, mm-hmm. and also that um, there's free exercise. And we think of these as, as going hand in hand. If there were any sort of establishment um, either in a hard sense of a state that actually does profess a certain religion, let alone the Catholic faith, um, but also any sort of favoring of the laws for religious exercise, Americans and and some periods in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence on the First Amendment will see that as itself violating um, mm-hmm. the right to free exercise. And the church actually does not see free exercise and establishment as mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. There can be some ways in which the state can favor religion, which does uh, interfere with the right of religious liberty. Um, uh, We might might talk about examples today or at the time of the Second Vatican Council in which that was true. But nonetheless, uh, there are ways in which the state ought to foster um, uh, religious liberty and the pursuit of the truth about God, Mm -hmm. which actually enables religious liberty and doesn't isn't a version of coercing people um, to hold a certain view. Right, right. Because the idea is that, at least as I understand it, is that you know people have a duty to pursue the truth and, to, and that if the state then should foster the conditions for people to pursue the truth about God, that is intention, it seems like, not necessarily with the Establishment Clause itself, but at least the way, and I'm not a lawyer, but at least the way the establ- Establishment Clause gets litigated today, even promoting religion in general is often seen as an establishment clause, as, as an establishment violation. That's where it seems like there's some tension. Right. I mean, historically, you think about someone like James Madison, who was very set on the state, not cognizing religion. Madison was a Presbyterian, and he certainly thought that man had a duty to, um, to believe the truth about God and give God the true worship. Um, but he thought that precisely because this duty transcends uh, the state's power and the political life that the, of the people, that 
the state should not cognize religion, should not not apprehend it, even in making laws, even in distinguishing between whether someone is a cleric or not, and and uh, for tax purposes or or any other reason. So um, there's 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 a way in which some a particular Protestant approach to this, which which certainly holds we have a duty toward God and our end is in God, but almost separates religion from um, from public life, whereas the the church. Uh, teaches that our ultimate end is in union with God uh, mm-hmm. through through Jesus Christ to to be included into the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as a as a gift of God's grace. God invites us um, uh, not only to be forgiven of our sins, but to participate in the divine life. That's mm-hmm. our ultimate goal in life. Mm-hmm. If everything else in our life doesn't help us toward that that end, it's interfering with our ultimate happiness. Well, what that means, though, is is um, one constant theme of the church's engagement with with politics throughout the millennia is that the church has always taught whatever sort of political system or arrangement or institutions are set up, they at the very least cannot interfere mm-hmm. with that journey of the human person to God, uh, both as individuals, but especially as a group, especially the church's freedom as uh, the body of Christ, uh, as the true religion. But also that, uh, ideally, to really achieve what's good for human beings, the political should be arranged to encourage or foster or permit people this free uh, pursuit of God, inv- invitation to uh, to the call, mm-hmm. um, to the to uh, union with God. Uh, really fascinating stuff. Uh, you know, and I have, I have a question. Sort of, you've touched on it a little bit. Um, but to go back to your uh, sort of commentary on the First Amendment in particular, in which, you know, sort of this idea that the government can't force people to um, sort of exercise religion in a particular way. They also can't prevent people from exercising in religion in a, in a particular way. In a modern context, you know, I, I sort of step back and sort of ponder the, the notion of what does it mean to exercise religion? And you have really two, I think, extremes or two opposites in the way in which this is done. I mean, on the one hand, sure, you can exercise religion. You know, you can go to mass, you can close your door and you can pray and you can engage in whatever religious exercises that you want on your own time within a private setting. The whole freedom of worship. Yeah, the freedom of worship context. And then there is sort of the opposite end or a different approach to it that sort of brings the religious kind of component more into a public square where sort of religious exercise is intimately tied to policy making or to you know the construction of of a certain hierarchy of values that should be sort of brought into the public square through through policy and that sort of thing um i'm curious if you have any thoughts on how to approach this dichotomy i suppose or sort of make sense of that, particularly within a public square, because that seems to be an, an area of real tension uh, between competing political parties, social sort of perspectives. So I, I suppose, and in, in the, the two extremes as you described them, is, is there's really a, a disagreement about the human person that underlies these different approaches. And the, the one that wants to separate religion from the public sphere almost from the body or from our so- the social side of our existence and keep it in terms of freedom of belief or freedom of what you do 
with a group of like-minded individuals in a closed box of a sanctuary or something like that, or in your own household, any sort of attempt to limit religion to some sort of private sphere um, uh, ultimately comes from a kind of um, division of um, faith and works, we might point out from the Reformation, or more um, in a more evident way from the Enlightenment, where you have a, a separation of reason and faith, where faith is irrational, faith is seen as something that can be tolerated religiously because it's in your mind. But as far as when we are true uh, free people, when we're true free citizens in public, we act according to what's um, what's most true, reason alone, apart from faith, no sort of openness of reason to the transcendent. And so, what I mean, you see this in many Enlightenment figures, each in their own way, um, uh, where religion becomes something private or almost that the state itself creates a kind of religious type substitute. Uh, the cult of reason in the French Revolution mm -hmm. was one way. But this is why, actually, to understand how things operated in communist countries and even in China today, it would be one extreme version of what even some people in America talk about as freedom of belief or freedom of, of worship. Uh, the French Revolution and uh, even in Soviet Russia and in China today, there's freedom of worship, there's freedom of belief. But it's seen as, as it were, something tolerated, irrational, a kind of force which you might permit to allow for a pacific social life. But when we're really public men, as it were, and the the French the the thinking here of the French Declaration of the the Rights of Man and Citizen, then then um, we shelve all that. That's not something you can bring into public life. It it interferes with the proper freedom. Well, this is a kind of uh, to to put it in rather stark theological terms. I mean, it's a kind of freedom that Satan loved to exercise of being free apart from God. Right where where God is is an irrational force. Um, uh, submission to God is something that is going to bring violence into the world and disrupt true happiness and flourishing. So there's a whole um, um, history about the wars of religion that goes along to uh, justify this view, etc. But um, so that's that's one view that we find today. What this view of the human person tends to do, though, is to separate intellect from body, will from social life. It, it tends to reduce the person and separate, carve up different parts of the person in ways that violates the unity of the person ultimately. It's one thing to distinguish political life from the life of the church or the life of someone's faith. It's one thing to distinguish between doctrines of faith and truths of natural reason. It's another thing to, to put up a wall separating those things so that not only are you separate from other human beings? But even within yourself, you're almost schizophrenically one person in public and one person in private, one person in your family and one person in your work um, in a way that is not just merely distinguishing between roles and realms, but separating the person up. So the church, um, again, teaching the unity of body and soul, the unity of faith and reason, uh, the unity of family and public life, the unity of uh, our supernatural and in God and our uh, our common life as a country sees these things actually as needing to be distinguished but ordered properly rather than separated or or um, made into a kind of mere option of one's own opinion that should be kept private and not something that should come out in actual way of life. So this is why Dignitatis Humanae uh, in the early parts of the document moves very quickly from... Uh, a teaching of the right of the human person 
to a description of this, what is entailed by this right is including a way of life, of not only life as individuals, but life as families, as uh, social groups. And that's just considered from a side of the human person. And later on, of course, it discusses the, the life of the church uh, as requiring a certain kind of freedom in herself. But um, the point is that the Catholic view of the human person sees um, all these things which, which tend to be separated by one side of this view into things that which much, must be ordered to, without introducing a kind of schizophrenia into the, our vision of the human person. On the other side of it, you can get maybe in the other direction saying that, well, if it's true that religion is the most important thing or the highest thing, thing which transcends even the state with all its power, then maybe um, for any religious reason whatsoever, you can constrain the public order of things. And I, I think this is what the overreaction of, of the Enlightenment model of freedom or the communist model of religion is responding to this fear that religion will come in and not order things rightly, but simply further disorder things. And actually the church teaches that the, the exercise of the right of religious liberty can be subject to just limitations on the mm -hmm. part of the state, not because the state has um, a sort of intrinsic authority over religious matters, but that the state is the guardian of our common political life. And if there are certain types of exercise of religion, which threaten a true public order, a true c conception of the common good of a society, then the state can step in to restrict certain practices of religion. Like religion's a pretty broad notion, mm -hmm. and scholars of religion have criticized one another for, for definitions of religion that are overbroad or mm -hmm. overly narrow. It's something that we have to be very careful. The, the church, to be honest, uh, Dignitatis Humanae never gives a definition of religion just presupposes people understand it has something to do with the transcendent. Mm -hmm. But what if, I mean, there have been religions in the history of the world where it was okay to sacrifice your children to your mm -hmm. God or, or um, voluntarily or involuntarily sacrifice a, an adult, um, cultic prostitution, uh, you name it, um, mm -hmm. po polygamous um, unions being being justified by, by religion. So what in those cases where where uh, a religious exercise would actually seem to violate pretty fundamental rights of other citizens or other human beings, or uh, or corrode public morality or disturb the public peace in a state properly ordered. Well, in those cases, not because the state regulates it qua religion, but qua violation of the social order, the state can actually restrict certain public exercises of religion in just that way. In fact, when the fathers of the Second Vatican Council were debating this, one of the key moves in changing the final drafts of the document was to include these properly calibrated phrases in the right where um, the human person is free uh, from coercion in the state, keeping with a just public order, or keeping mm -hmm. with, a, with a just conception of the common good. And in those cases, the state would actually... Um, be within its right and in fact obligated to restrict certain abuses of the exercise of religious liberty. So to keep these things united is not to say that that anything goes on the other hand, but it is to simply in this matter always to keep the truth about the human person in view, politically, religiously, etc. Mm -hmm. and to harmonize all these different realms. It's, it's one of these things that often frustrates me uh, working here and doing advocacy for religious liberty 
that it's often painted as if religious liberty is treated as sort of a, a, a pass for anything. When I don't think any religious liberty advocates I know of would say that, that it's absolute. You know, I think everybody recognizes that what, what you just pointed out about the, about the importance of, of the common good, of just public order, but it's often treated, it's kind of caricatured as if religious liberty is just something you appeal to so that you can appeal to something that's kind of beyond reason or beyond public debate. Um, but I do think it's a good point that I don't think anybody thinks that it's that it's absolute. Um, but I want to ask you another question about Dignitatis Humanae. And it's about, you know, one of the controversial aspects of it. And I, I mean, this is what you wrote your dissertation on about the doctrinal development, um, Catholic social teaching. One of the issues there is, is that it seems like the church changed its teaching. And it's not, this isn't just an academic question. Some people will look at the, they'll say, well, this is so much different than what the 19th century popes taught. And that's also, that's readily available, what the 19th century popes taught, because it's all online. Some people say, well, if the church changed on this, then they could just change on anything, you know. Um, We see that, then other people will say, well, the church actually didn't even change at all. Uh, they'll, and they'll try to read it in a way that makes it seem like there's not really a change. I think for a while we've lived with this. It's It's been pretty common to hear this idea that, well, the church changed on this one thing. It can change on contraception. It can change on same-sex relationships. It can change on whatever the t- the issue of the day happens to be. But then recently you've had this more of this idea of, well, we should be pushing for a confessional state. And I think they, that group tends to appeal to this idea that, well, I think they're a little bit uncomfortable with religious liberty, but they can say, well, Dignitas Humanae didn't really change anything. Can you comment on that or where, I, how did the church change? How did the church change and how did it not change? So this is, this is obviously an a, um, important area of research, but also a very delicate one, um, even among scholars who might agree formally about how the doctrine hasn't hasn't changed. They also often have very divergent ideas as to how to explain this, etc. So I can give my opinion on this matter, uh, drawing somewhat from what uh, the popes themselves have said, what Vatican II said. But uh, in the end, this is just to caution my 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 opinion in, in well, this, this regard. Well, this is ongoing. But, an ongoing but, issue, right? Right. I mean, it's it's um it's not just a matter of as as you point out, not just a theoretical matter for theologians, but also a way in which has um, at times made Catholics think that the magisterium is a kind of um uh can change the the doctrine of the faith whenever, however it chooses, etc. So something that is absolutely forbidden, declared intrinsically evil at one time, can become just fine later on. So there is a, a practical crisis mm-hmm. as well in this regard. One thing to point out that's different about the church's teaching and and social matters in particular is you're always dealing with a little bit of a moving target because society itself and the, the historical circumstances of the teaching themselves are always uh, moving. So one of the things theologians have to be careful to do is to try and figure out what is what are lasting principles that are driving the church's teaching in this or that social matter, and and what is an understandable response to certain historical crises, but which aren't necessarily going to be applicable to later moments where you might be dealing with a different set of circumstances. So that's just a general, general way in which theologians go about interpreting the church's teaching. 
And the church herself invites that kind of analysis in the 1990 instruction on the vocation of the theologian, uh, drawing on some other magisterial texts before and which has been expanded on after. Um, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith notes that um, for teaching of the church that's not infallibly taught for reformable church teaching, as, it, as it's sometimes called, or, or non-definitive teaching, you can get, uh, it, it might not be clear at the moment, the church is having to respond to a particular pressing doctrinal or practical question, and there may be contingent elements wrapped up in the church's response that can only be clarified kind of over time with a little bit of distance, where the church's teaching is is at least safe, if not true, with regard to some matter, but um, the church is, is pressed for some reason and, and has to give a response, can't wait around for um, uh, forever for theologians or, or even the bishops and the pope to to try and contemplate what the what a faithful response in light of the truth that Christ has passed on to the church would be. Now, in the church's teaching in the 19th century on the state, what, what are some historically contingent elements of that teaching? Uh, well, one is you're dealing with the aftermath of not only the Protestant Reformation, which has now been several centuries kind of under the bridge, but now the Enlightenment phase of the church's clash with the state where after the French Revolution, uh, using certain conceptions of the political community, um, the church is seen as subject to the state, or at least um, the state becomes indifferent toward the truth about God. And so um, you, you get certain conceptions of political order that are highly privatized faith that um, uh, lead to the expropriation of church properties, which lead to the state claiming absolute regulation over, say, Catholic education. Uh, and this happens in France, this happens in Germany, um, uh, etc. So uh, one thing to keep in mind is, in many ways, there's a forcible stripping of the faith from the people in these countries that the church is responding to, whereas before there was um, uh, sometimes... Uh, uh, with different different grades of success, but nonetheless, before there was more collaboration between church and state in in um, uh, guiding the people toward uh, their final end in God, uh, toward living together in justice, etc. So, uh, in many ways, the popes are reacting to proposals of religious liberty that are justly seen as cutting the citizenry off from a true religious liberty. Now. There are some teachings, nonetheless, which I think are more weighty from the 19th century and which the church herself even today treats as of lasting value. One of these, actually, many people turn to the syllabus of errors of Pius IX as, as being sort of the whipping boy for this, this story of doctrinal reversal. Um, but actually, the, the weightier one, both in its own form and in the way the church today looks back on the 19th century, is a different work by Pius IX, an encyclical called, called uh, Quanta Cura, which I think in the whole religious liberty discussion is actually of equal or greater weight mm -hmm. than Dignitatis Humanae. And, and there, Pius um, talked about um, one, one condemnation in particular that has been controversial, uh, but which the church herself cites in the Catechism of the Catholic Church as talking about what are the restrictions on the exercise of religious liberty. And what's the, the proper calibration between the political and the church in, in uh, the social life of a country? And Pius condemns uh, the, the following proposition. 
against the teaching of sacred scripture of the church and of the holy fathers they do not hesitate to assert that quote the best condition of society is that in which the duty of coercing by penal sanctions violators of the catholic religion is not caught recognized by the government except insofar as the public peace requires end quote now that that proposition uh, as often at the heart of some of the more academic discussions of is Dignitatis Humanae a, a total reversal of this prior teaching. Uh, there are so many elements here, which when you're talking about coercion, penal sanctions, the state acting as uh, in the favor of the church in mm-hmm. particular, not just religion in general, but the Catholic church to coerce violators of the Catholic religion. So uh, in that regard, I mean, Dignitatis Humanae just seems like a total reversal, not just a an application to different circumstances, but now in principle, a total uh, a contradiction even. And holding that position has led to the formation of, say, the Society of St. Pius X on the one hand, to um, dissenting theologians in the church saying, well, if we can do that with something as important as church-state relationships, why can't we then talk about matters of sexual morality mm-hmm. as being totally reversible here you have this statement, which is so solemn, this condemnation from Pius IX, um, and yet an ecumenical council later undid it. So that, that's the problem to set that up. My, my approach is to note um, a couple of things. First, textually, uh, the church herself has not repudiated the principles inherent in this teaching from the 19th century, which is, first of all, um, and has, was repeated by all the popes after Pius IX, and as repeated by the church today, that the political has to be calibrated to our final end. Uh, Second of all, uh, how you construe the church, I mean the state rather, coercing with penal sanctions violator of the Catholic religion, uh, except insofar as public peace requires, there's actually a lot of terms there that need to be defined and unrolled. One of the main problems uh, with this uh, statement that people don't often think about is they say, well, Vatican II talked about public peace, public order. The French Revolution and Pius IX talked about public peace and public order. So we have a contradiction, you know. But one thing is it should be kept in mind. When Pius IX is talking about public peace as the condition in which the state might use coercion to restrain certain types of exercise of religion, in this case exercise uh, which violates the Catholic religion, he's thinking of the definition of public peace or public order, which comes out of the French Revolution, again, where faith is privatized. And if you worship together with other individuals in a group, it's by the state's permission. Like the state really does at best tolerate that and otherwise authorize it as a kind of concession. But after the French Revolution codifies this strong reaction against the faith, that, such that faith, again, was irrational. And so any social body within the state was seen as a threat to the sovereignty of the state, which of course made made men truly free. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there is a kind of totalitarian democracy, which is the democracy of the French Revolution, which which is operating in this 19th century period, not just in France, but in other countries. So when they say public peace, it's a kind of what we define public peace to be, not what is truly going to contribute to our flourishing as human beings, in the political sphere as the common good. But what we say it is, and part of what we say it is, is that religion is irrational and ought to be 
maybe the valve can be opened up as it were from time to time. But mm-hmm. um, so there's a conception of our political life, which uh, in practice denies our tra- transcendent order to God. So um, a lot of these older teachings, you have to keep in mind, you just can't read off a similarity of terms, 19th century, 20th century. The hope was at Vatican II, especially with these, these careful phrasings of what just public order or the objective moral order is like in the, the Vatican II document, there is hope that after the, the two world wars, this kind of totalitarian nationalism, even in, a, in its democratic form, would be sufficiently chastened such that states would recognize their kind of, uh, not only their own restrictions in religious matters, but recognizes they needed to foster a certain vision of the human person's flourishing, even in political life, such that they would actually know what is true public order, what is true public peace, what it means to order people one to another and to, uh, uh, to the common good, uh, such that they would, they would achieve um, true flourishing not a sort of artificially restricted, uh, deracinated version of the human person that came out of the French Re- uh, Revolution. So in this, in this regard, the, the, the prima facie case for contradiction is often too quickly made. On the other hand, what I do see happening with Vatican II, and this maybe would, would put me in disagreement with other scholars looking for continuity between the two teachings, is I, I do see that also likewise following on the two World Wars. The Church, for example, in Benedict the Fifteenth during and after World War One, and uh, Pius the Twelfth during and after World War Two, are con- drawing on elements of the Catholic tradition and its co- the Catholic tradition's conception of international order and how ought nation states t- ought to relate to one another in light of the truth of the human person and our call to supernatural beatitude. Uh, they're imagining what would a just international order look like which would bring about peace not only within nations Mm -hmm. but between nations Mm -hmm. and so this opened up a certain a new question the 19th century teachings are all typically focused on nations themselves and their internal life especially catholic nations which were majority catholic or where there was close collaboration between church and state in the flourishing of human person whereas now there's there's an acknowledgement that and the international order that will be constructed after, say, World War II, however that's going to look, you're dealing with nations from a variety of different traditions now. And so is there some sort of consensus on the rights of the human person that we can agree to, which will then allow us to develop a more pacific way to avoid something like a World War II from happening again, right? I mean, it's, the Cold War is already underway when Vatican mm-hmm. II is, is meeting. With awareness that, say... Um, not only Western countries, which have a sort of deeply embedded hostility toward religion or indifference toward religion, but also communist countries or Muslim countries or other countries have have these conflicted views on religious liberty and either either deny it outright or restrict it to a kind of internal freedom of thought, etc. Or where there's freedom for, say, Muslims, but not for Christians and so forth. So after World War II, I would say that the the international community was striving for some sort of mechanism to recognize religious liberty in a, almost a family of nations uh, so, so that you can develop a kind of international custom of mutual recognition of religious liberty between nations, for travelers between nations, and that would develop also then internally 
for the for citizens within the nations. So there's a sort of international perspective. Um, I, I draw on a French scholar in my dissertation, Basile Valuet, a uh, French Benedictine, to to talk about how this traditional concept of the law of nations and Catholic political theology drawing from the Spanish scholastics of the 16th and 17th centuries, the Dominican and Jesuits, as a way of, of talking about the potential for development and, and justice as to how nations treat one another and what that might demand, even of a Catholic country where there is collaboration between church and state. So this is why like even after Vatican or after Vatican II, even a state like Spain, where Franco has certainly establishment of religion, kind of limited religious freedom for Jews and Protestants in the country, that it has to open up to be more public, that freedom for Jews and Protestants within Spain, assenting to the church's uh, acceptance of this growing desire among nations to allow for a kind of recognition that the state as such does not claim all of who the human person is, and for the sake of peace, uh, this custom of a mutually recognized religious liberty ought to be recognized. Now, that's my opinion on the development. There are some aspects of the document itself, Vatican II, that point to this, especially toward the end of the document. Uh, if I can just read an excerpt for, uh, for you here, where at the end of the document, the, the council notes that, that the council exhorts Catholics and it directs a plea to all men most carefully to consider how greatly necessary religious freedom is, especially in the present condition of the human family. So here again is my, mm -hmm. my focus on a change in conditions, mm -hmm. a necessity for international peace. And here's the next line. All nations are coming into even closer unity. Men of different cultures and religions are being brought together in closer relationships. There is a growing consciousness of the personal responsibility that every man has. All this is evident. Consequently, in order that relationships of peace and harmony be established and maintained, with, maintained within the whole of mankind, it is necessary that religious freedom be everywhere provided with an effective constitutional guarantee and that respect be shown for the high duty and right of man freely to lead his religious life in society. May the God and Father of all grant that the human family, through careful observance of the principle of religious freedom in society, may be brought by the grace of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to the sublime and unending and glorious freedom of the sons of God. So obviously a very Catholic statement, but one which um, is based on doctrines which other people find attractive, the Catholic doctrine of the unity of the human race, mm -hmm. that whatever our different religions now or different cultures now, God founded the human race as one and we're called to one end mm -hmm. in God, and that for peace among men, uh, the mutual recognition of religious liberty be found between states and within states. So in my mind, there's a, there's a sort of growth and awareness of um, what the problems were that got us into um, World War I and World War II on the sort of positivistic, totalitarian kind of nationalisms, uh, but also that the, the true solution can only be founded on a true view of the human person, not only as we are as individuals, but as we are in relation to one another, um, and of our of our true end in God, which transcends who we are as citizens, who we are as members of the state, or 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 so forth. So, uh, in my mind, there's a development in the law of nations, which enables this recognition on the part of the state of greater practical exercise of religion, which before, especially in Catholic states, would be a violation of public order. Other scholars 
um, proposed different solutions for Thomas Pink, uh, professor of philosophy at King's College in London, um, likewise proposes a continuity between the old teaching and the new, but sees this not as much as a matter of justice as a prudential recognition on the part mm -hmm. of the church that because of the pluralistic nature of the world, that the church, as it were, withdraws her authorization from particular states to use coercive power for the church's ends um, uh, to, uh, in particular, protect the baptized from public manifestations of religion, which would interfere with or hinder their assent to and practice of the Catholic faith, or to coerce members of the Catholic faith who have fallen away back to keep their baptismal promises, mm -hmm. which they made in baptism. So um, in, in that regard, I, I respect greatly Professor Pink's desire to harmonize the two sets of teachings. Uh, at the same time, I, I think what the church teaches in Dignitatis Humanae isn't merely a prudential move, but one which recognizes a change of conditions that injustice requires uh, a way of articulating the freedom of the human person vis-a-vis -vis the totalitarian state or the state which tries to capture all the social and religious energies of the person toward temporal ends in a way that maybe is more more under falls under the virtue of justice than of prudence in that regard. But um, I certainly would would agree that there are changes in the way in which the teaching is articulated. But I would agree with Professor Pink that there is deeper continuity in the principles involved between the two the two epochs. So many questions. Um, which one do I ask? Um, <laughs> yes, I think we only have time for like one more question. Oh my so. god! Um, so I mean, one of the questions, one of the the fundamental themes you keep returning to is kind of the anthropological, the anthropological nature of the of the question of religious liberty and how it has to be situated within a proper understanding of the person for it to be realized properly. And so one of the questions that I, sort of the question that I have is that you can you can look at two trends um, on the one hand, sort of the emergence of the autonomous individual as kind of a, an understanding within, I think, Western society of, of what it means to be a person. And this can be plays out to oversimplify, you know, within conservative circles, you know, kind of the free market and the individual being a consumer and choice, unlimited in nature, so on and so forth. On the left, it's sort of more this kind of the social freedoms, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, questions related to gay marriage or sort of self-realization of this is who I am, this is how I want to be, this is how I want to live. You know, and, and in some ways they inter intersect. That's sort of one notion. The other notion is, uh, and a little broader and a little more vague perhaps, is the idea of perhaps non-Catholic Christian conceptions of the person that emerge out of the, uh, the Reformation and whether or not they are at odds with a Catholic understanding um, as formulated within documents related to religious freedom and the church. So I'm curious as to how the Catholic Church's understanding of religious freedom within a context of these competing notions of the individual person, how really what hope do we have to actually realize the teaching in its fullness moving forward into a world where these anthropological presuppositions of society at large don't seem to be compatible with a Catholic understanding of the person? So I, I think what I can say, and just to do my best with the time we have remaining, <laughs> is um, the, the vision that the church articulates in Dignitatis Humanae is not of autonomous individuals. And in fact, that's why the, the document itself moves quickly, as I, as I noted before, between an, an articulation of this right, which seems to be talking about mere individuals, it is talking about individual people exercising religious freedom, but that therefore flowing from this right, 
as a way of uh, articulating how religious religious liberty works then in a familial or a social context where it's presumed that if you hold something to be ultimately true about God, you are going to want to live your life in accordance with that truth. And that requires consideration then of not mere individuals making their own monistic choices, but then groups making choices and groups forming ways of life and community um, that uh, require um, to be truly free uh, the protection of law and the encouragement of law to to go about their common life. So this is why, for example, in in your office and and other um, uh, Catholic or even uh, just generally Christian defenses of religious liberty, you will see legal funds and groups advocating for zoning laws to be to not interfere with with Muslims attempting to build a mosque, for example, because it's recognizing there is a social side to us. And if you say that your belief, it, it would be, it would be almost like saying your belief can go no further than your own individual mind, than to say that you have to have some sort of um, automatic restriction on the, the the bodily or social exercise of, of religion. So the the vision of the human person and Dignitatis Humanae is sees the social as flowing immediately on the individual's own exercise of of, of religious liberty, versus say like a view where you might say. Well, you believe what's true for you, and I'll believe what's true for me, and you don't interfere with me, and I don't interfere interfere with you. I mean, and to a certain extent, extent that can happen, but then to pretend as as though there won't be any public social ramifications of of religious liberty is to almost deny it in a certain sense. So, and in that regard, there's that. Now, there's there's so many issues raised by your question. I really don't know where to. We can leave it at that for now. But I, well, for another guest visit. Well, I mean, this maybe one thing to say is that I think it was hoped with Vatican II, and you see quickly the disappointment of later popes as to how this developed after the Council, especially with Saint John Paul II and his his approach to matters of of um, the the moral truth about the human person and implications for for law and politics, is that you can construe the right in an autonomous kind of way. And very quickly it becomes akin, therefore, to say uh, the right to an abortion, right? We're just respecting autonomous choices. But that's not a neutral kind of autonomy. Rather, that's an autonomy that demands the law is bent toward a certain vision of the human person, uh, who we are, uh, when we begin, um, what our rights are vis-a-vis other human beings, whether our rights entail protecting common ways of life, or whether protecting common ways of life restrict individual autonomy. So you, you might see, like, for example, religious liberty cases where employees at Catholic schools make their own choices with regard to moral matters that are openly and committedly contrary to Catholic teaching on sexuality or family, marriage, and their their contracts are not renewed. You know, they, they, um, uh, they're fired, they're, they... They won't agree to a clause in their contracts about respecting Catholic teaching in their in their lives, things like that. And I, I think that's where the vision is often drawn out in modern American politics is those cases. People think, well, they're just free, autonomous individuals who can do what they please, whereas uh, the church, um, the schools, they are saying, well, but on the other hand, we're free too, and our freedom requires fostering a certain common vision of life. and so there, there, I think you see perhaps one of the ways in which those 
those quite disparate visions of the human person come into contact, even though both are talking about freedom in that way. So I mean, I think the church, the church views are flourishing as social. It's not just, and maybe this for some Protestants, maybe not for others. Um, this would likewise manifest in some disagreement about maybe some Protestants would emphasize a sort of individual belief. There are other Protestants who would not, who would who would agree that there's a social impact to this to this right. Uh, whatever our disagreements about the nature of the church as such. But nonetheless, there might be some ways in which you emphasize a, a kind of individual believer before God, who if he gets together with other in individual believers, you might emphasize the church as a kind of voluntary association. That would be another way in which you would ignore the other side of the teaching coming from the church's nature and the nature of our final end. But th this very complicated. It's a great question, but I mean, we can, I, I'm getting, I'm getting dirty looks here from, from Aaron. So, not, no, <laughs> um, no dirty looks. Your kind person is true, but maybe, maybe one is anxious. <laughs> well, no, I do think though we, we might want to get going because we, um, we don't want to miss the opening address at the, at our annual meeting. It's, it's true. Here. But I'm, my thought is that I, I may have to, I mean, how far away is Emmitsburg? Because I have some follow-up questions I want, I'd like to ask too, but so well, you may. Well, we're, we're about, at, depending, well, on, for traffic wise, it could be two hours, but in theory, an hour, hour and a half. Maybe, maybe my family and I will come up there because there's things to see, right? Like pilgrimages to be made and. Well, so we have a very beautiful um, shrine grotto of Our mm -hmm. Lady of Lords up on the mountain. Uh, it gets hundreds of thousands of, of pilgrims a year. There's yeah, also yeah. the there's also the uh, burial place and the shrine of Saint Elizabeth Ann Seton right, right. is in Emmitsburg. Both both very uh, beautiful places of pilgrimage and retreat. Uh, you could also the inside of our house is pretty nice. You could come you could come have have lunch or dinner. <laughs> yeah, with us maybe too. we'll come up. Maybe we'll come up for a pilgrimage and then we'll do a and then we could do like a little. I can bring some of the podcasting stuff and we'll do a follow up. Fan, that sounds great. So that we'll end on that. Thank you so much for joining us and Todd. Thanks for taking your afternoon out to pleasure. Come thanks upstairs. For me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. Mm -hmm.